Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with Pastor Nick Gibson. Hey. We're back, and we're doing a new podcast on as the Asbury Re- Revival. I know this is a popular thing people and, are talking about. Yeah, and probably like revival in general, and like revival in general. What is a revival? It. What does it mean to? Or how should how have revivals happened, started, and proceeded in the past? Um, Mm-hmm. And so we kind of just decided to do this this morning. We we're going to do a different podcast, but since um, since this is happening, we decided to do this right now. So, so the Asbury revival started last week. I think it was like last Thursday, right? And Wednesday, they think, just yeah. did a regular chapel meeting at at the university. Um, people were singing, and then I and think there was a message. There was a message, yeah, mm-hmm. and then and then and then it went into worship, and then I think people just never stopped worshiping. Yeah, I mean, my what I my understanding is is that people did come up and confess sins, mm-hmm. and that there is a period of like confession and right. like repentance. Right. But when you see all the videos posted online, are essentially corporate like musical corporate worship. Worship, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's it's gained like worldwide uh, attention. Yeah, even like NBC, CBS, they've been writing stories on yeah. it. I mean, I it's, saw it's a, a video of the student body president on Tucker, Tucker Carlson, for example. Yeah. It was a YouTube clip. Right. Yeah. So yeah, there, there have been people people looking right. at it. There there is kind of a cottage industry of like revival chasing, right? Um, and that's this been going on for years. And I think that that's going to happen at this one. Right. I don't see why it wouldn't. Revival chasing. That just is people chasing the revival. Yeah, I mean, people feel like where there's a special move of God, they God it. is moving there specially. Right. And if you go, right. you can you can experience it, right. and that you don't like. Some people will say, "Look, the Holy, same Holy Spirit is with you wherever you are," yeah. and so you can experience revival right now by like repenting and believing and drawing close to Him. Right. Which, on one level, I think is true. Right. But I think I think people sometimes feel that like there's something about God's providence where He'll choose in certain times and places to move in certain ways, right? And going there, like getting on, it's like getting under the faucet. It's like you go to the place, and so right. there are people who do that, and then um, they'll quote carry the revival back to where yeah. they're from, and so like the secular Christian, charismatic Christian split here is: are they spreading social contagion? Or are they spreading the spirit? The Holy Spirit, right? Yeah. And I, I I probably have an infuriating view on this, that it's okay if Christian faith spreads like a social contagion, if it's the real Christian faith. Right. Because I think people are influenced by each other. And if somebody goes to revival and they, they catch a social spirit, so to speak, yeah. that is turning to God in repentance and faith and is right. seeking to purify their heart before God. And, and then they, they, they quote, catch that personally. Mm-hmm. And then they go back somewhere and they're like, they ignite that. Right. Even if it's not quote, a special work of the spirit, like that's still the Holy spirit working in. Right. Like, I, yeah. Like and it depends on how you want to describe it. There's Paul, some people who think it's sheer social contagion because they don't believe in Jesus. And they don't believe in God. And so it's right. just like, well, this is just a social contagion. Like hysteria, hysterical dancing. Right. There's a bunch of like, there's a bunch of like, um, even like to a certain extent, multiple personality disorder. It goes, right. it like rises and wanes. Mm-hmm. Historically is what I've heard. Mm-hmm. It's what I've heard psychologists, historical psychologists say yeah. that there are a number of psychological problems that will wax and wane based on whether or not lots of people are believing them at a particular time. Yeah. 
And then they're shown to be a certain kind of hoax. And then nobody believes in them for 70 years. Right. And then they kind of come raging back. And so there are such things as social contagions. Right. Social contagions could be religious. Well, and so the question people will ask, well, is this Christian social thing a social contagion? I think that's a fair question. I think part of I think it might be fair, but I also think it's kind of dumb. I think Paul, Paul says like, Wherever Jesus' name is being preached, like he rejoices. I mean, right. he, like, and I think that that's a good attitude. Like, I, I don't, like, yeah, yeah, there's heresy. And I think he was saying that about people who are being, who are like intentionally mm-hmm. distorting the gospel and certain, or not distorting the gospel, but intentionally. He, fo- he believed that they had impure motives. Impure motives, right. Yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, like, that would be a similar situation if there was impure motives here, but like Jesus is being spread. I don't. I, I feel like people should not get caught up on that. I think that they should just get, but we can talk about that. So yeah. let's, let's start with talking about, maybe we can talk about what historically, what has a revival been and mm-hmm. then, and then see if there's parallels to what's happening right now. And then see, and then at the end, maybe what, what, what do we yeah. do to, about it to respond to it? I'm reading a book right now, the heritage of Anglican theology by J.I. Packer. And I'm right now I'm in the section called evangelical revival which they're yeah. talking about Edwards, Whitfield, Wesley, um, and a little bit about Spurgeon. Spurgeon, yeah. And, uh, yeah, because all those people except Spurgeon were Anglicans. Right, yeah. You know? And so... Uh, was Edwards an Anglican? Oh, no, Edwards was not. No, he was a Congregationalist. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But, but, his, but Wesley and, and Whitfield, similar. but then Wesley started the Methodist Church. After yeah. he died, it started, but he had started the like that structure of... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say technically Wesley did start the Methodist Church in that he ordained people yeah. in such a way as that was re- totally rejected by the Anglican Church. Right. And when he chose to ordain people, the Anglican Church wouldn't ordain. He started something. Right. You know? Right. Well, he started these groups of people. I can't remember exactly what they were called, but after he died, they turned these groups of people into a, a legitimate church called the Methodist Church. Like these yeah. groups of, of tiers of Christians who met together. But um, so yeah, this well, is like, clear, yeah, they're just called classes. But right. yeah. mm-hmm. the, the, so this is like part of the first great awakening. It's a revival, evangelical revival. So maybe you can give people an insight into yeah. this is, I guess, I, this is where I would think we would start. Or maybe we started Pentecost yeah. back in the in Acts. I don't know, but it's up to yeah, you. Yeah, that's a, there's a long, there's a long history of. So part of it is like, how would you even define revival, right? And mm-hmm. so sometimes people will talk about renewal. Mm-hmm. In revival, so what, the way here's how I would define them, and not everybody would define them this way. I would define a renewal as people who are believers, who something happens and they are like kind of they're renewed, like they're they are their the dryness goes away, their faith is renewed. But if you would have found them before the renewal, they were believers. Mm-hmm. They believed in Jesus. They tried to obey him. They followed him. That right. In my view, a revival is when a nation or a people has had faith and lost it. And the people are not believers. They might be nominally Christian or whatever, but they're not believers. And if God judged them, he would judge them to not be Christians. Right. Mm -hmm. And so then the message of the gospel is revived among a people Mm -hmm. where it was dead. Right. So renewal, you're alive, but you become more alive and you're thriving. A revival is something has died. Faith has died. And then from some seed, the fire catches again, so to speak. I'm not mixing metaphors there, but so in Wesley's time and Whitfield's time, you had a Christian nation or a Christianized England. Yeah. But 
church attendance was super low. People weren't interested. Right. The kind of Christianity that was being preached was a kind of semi-Pelagianism, which was kind of works-based. Yeah. And like it was salvation by being a good English person, right. which meant having like good manners and good breeding and all that kind of stuff. Right. And so th- that's why it was such a scandal when they turned to the preach to the coal miners, you know. <laughs> and so um, Whitfield, Whitfield and Wesley were awakened, were, well, what had revived in them a, what you might call an evangelical gospel, which is faith in Christ alone for our salvation, the work of the Spirit regenerating us, and us coming to follow Jesus and preaching the scriptures themselves, right. even if it means not, even if it means pissing off people that are in the church hierarchy. Yeah. And that's essentially what happened with Whitfield and Wesley in different ways. Wesley right. became a preacher and wanted to be an Anglican priest, but he wasn't really converted. But he he was a he was a Christian in that he'd studied the scriptures, he knew New Testament Greek and all of that. But he was sent to America. And there were two major things. One is he was a complete idiot. Um I, the technical term, I think, and this is moderate profanity, but like like a jackass. He was just yeah. like a like a he was just an like I, I wish I knew another word for that. Because right. I, I don't like to use slang, but like he was just he was just hard. He was um, he, uh, precipitous, like he would do things kind of like rashly, very judgmentally. He was better than everybody else, but he was also like a good guy at the same time. It was like kind of one of these people's like, so there's, there's this one point where he was preaching at a town like in Northern Georgia. Yeah. He, yeah. I, I just read about, he got driven out of Georgia in the middle of the night. Yeah, well, okay, so this is before that. He's preaching this town in northern Georgia. So he's a preacher, right? But he right. would say later he wasn't a Christian. Yeah. And, and he went this, to Georgia as a missionary. Yeah, and yeah. so he was already bold. He was already disciplined and bold and serious business, and he wanted people to turn to God in mass numbers. And so he's there. He's preaching at these basically these settlers, and most of these people are like rough people. So after one of his sermons, this lady came up to him, and I wanted, so she pulled out a gun and tried to shoot him at like three feet. And the gun misfired. And so then she pulled out, I want to say she pulled out a pair of scissors and tried to stab him in the chest. And she, he restrained her and she bit him. Like, this is how some people responded to John Wesley. Right. There's another time where like, I wish we lived in, he was sweet on this girl. Right. And like, so, okay. So one of Wesley's personal faults was he couldn't close the deal romantically. (laughs) So he, he kind of fell in love with this girl. I think her name was Sophie Hopke. And he basically didn't close the deal. And he like goes off preaching somewhere and some guy comes in and propositions her for marriage and she accepts and she marries him. Meanwhile, Wesley comes back and they're like in his parish because Sophie was in his parish. That's how he met her in the first place. So she and her new husband come up for communion and he won't serve them communion (laughs) because they're in sin because they hurt his feelings. (laughs) Right. He's just bitter. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously like declaring your love for somebody. Right assumed engagement in a certain kind of way. And he, whatever, but like, this isn't the first time this happened. Yeah. To me. Well, it is the first time, but later he has this relationship with a woman who he doesn't close the deal. He says that he told them else. that they were in sin though. Well, he wouldn't offer them. They weren't, right. they couldn't be they communicants. Be they, so they yeah. were being excommunicated, yeah. right? That's messed up. Man. Yeah. So <laughs> like, anyway, it's so anyway, there's a lawsuit that arises over this. And ultimately he ends up fleeing in the night because he's going to be arrested in Georgia. Right. Now, on both ways over the ocean, he runs into these German, basically evangelical, charismatic Christians called Moravians. Yeah, I'm reading about them right now. Yeah. Moravians. That's okay. And the Moravians were like low church. Most of them were like blue collar. Yeah. And they just like, they they were pietists. 
right? They yeah. were from the Holly school. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. so it was like, what you feel about Jesus in your heart is in- incredibly important. You need to know some doctrine. Right. That's good. You, you should do good works, but the right. good works flow and the interest in doctrine comes from a fire in the heart, right? That's pietism, right? right? And then he went to this thing. He went to, what was that called that he went Ultimately, to? Ultimately, like, he went to Hernhut. Yeah. Which was this like long-term revival that Count Zinzendorf had started. And he wrote in his journal, I don't want to go to this. Yeah. He did not want to go there at all. And he went there yeah. and then God convicted him to try to, God convicted him to pray for the people who had hurt him. And then that led him to having the feeling in his heart, that that feeling that you're talking about, right? Sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're mixing a few different events, but yes. Probably, yeah. So like on both ways over to America, the boat that he's on is in storms so serious that it seems like the boat is going to sink. Even the sailors have given them up for lost. Wow. And the only people on the boat that aren't afraid to die are the Moravians. And he's, he looks at these little children and women and he sees that they are more manly than him. Is like it would be the like the 17th century way to say it. Like they like they weren't afraid of death. And yeah. the Moravians said to him, "Our women and even our children are not afraid of death." We, Dude, I we just believe read in Jesus. this. Is so crazy. I just read this like yesterday. I was reading mm-hmm. through all this. That's just so this happens both ways, back and forth, and it's so humiliating. And this gets to like how shame and humiliation can actually be a really positive emotion sometimes. Right. It's so humiliating to him because he feels like I'm this Christian pastor. Right. If anybody should not have a fear of death, it should be me. And I am terrified to die. These people are not. What right. is going on? And the answer and is, tough, and like, the answer is, Oxford can't save you. Greek can't save you. Like right. those are all like analytic and That's intellectual true. stuff is really good. But Wesley had studied logic and he'd studied right. like all kinds of stuff. But he didn't, as evangelicals would say, know Jesus. Yeah. And so yeah, eventually he goes and he to a Moravian Bible study, Bible study where I think it was the guy's name is Peter Bowler, and they're they're preaching at the, this Bible study was basically he was reading the introduction and Wesley says it's the introduction to his to Luther's commentary on Romans. Yes, that's but what some I mean. scholars actually believe it was the introduction to Luther's commentary on Galatians, oh. and that that might have been a mistake, but. Um, because the gospel is outlined more clearly in his mm. introduction to the Galatian gospel, uh, the, the book of Galatians. Anyway, but like while it's being read, yeah, he says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I believed, yes. I did believe in Christ that yeah. he died for me, even right. me. Right? right. And God's love was shed abroad in my heart. So what he would say is in Calvinist terms, that that was the moment he experienced the miracle of regeneration, that the Holy Spirit did something in him. He would, he, the way Wesley would often say it was, the experience of the love of God shed abroad in our hearts, which is a scriptural quote, right? That like the love of God actually came into my heart. Yeah. And I begin to feel God's love for me. And I begin to actually know that I could love others. Right. Right. And then that was an experience. And so even though Wesley didn't lead a revival of experience chasing, he did believe in experience and that experience was important and necessary for Christian life. He essentially was a pietist. And that's an evangelical view that you have, that there is a particular I mean, that's probably where some of this, like, what's the moment you became a Christian stuff that happened in like the fifties yeah. and sixties. Like it was like, write the date down that you right. became a Christian. And it's like, you can accept Jesus right now. Yeah. You go exactly. to an altar call and that's when you accepted Jesus. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But for Wesley, he did yeah. believe the emotional experience was a significant part. And the reason for, he, just, he believed that was not because he thought going up to altar calls was the be all end all. In fact, he didn't think that what he knew was that he had followed Christ for years and the, the emotional life of a Christian that's spoken about in the New Testament, he was not experiencing. Yeah. And so when this happened to him, he realized something had happened. He had been revived. Yeah. He had experienced a renewal, but he, he would have said he didn't just experience a renewal. 
he was revived. He was mm-hmm. saved. He was actually became a Christian. Right. And at that moment, he's like, oh, this is what being a Christian is. Right. It's not just believing Jesus died for the world, but it's actually like conceptually, it's believing in my heart, like right. emotionally knowing mm-hmm. Jesus died for me, even me. Right. And right. his love is in my heart and can right. flow out towards others as well. My sins have been justified by his death. Whereas like when people, Peter Buller would ask him, Wesley, do you believe Jesus died for your sins? And he would reply, I believe Jesus died for the sins of the world. And what he meant was, therefore, by implication, Jesus died for me. And Bowler's like, that's not enough. It's not enough to believe by implication, Jesus died for you because he died for the whole world. You have to know it in your, in your, in your heart, like not just in your, like to say it in modern psychological terms, not just in your like prefrontal cortex mind, in your deliberative mind or your educated mind, but in your, in your deeper feelings yeah. and soul, you know? Right. And pietism is correct. Like the more we learn about psychology, the more we realize that pietism is correct. Yeah. If you can't get the faith you say you believe in into the whole of your quote brain or in the, the depths of your mind, right. it won't govern your emotions. It won't yeah. really lead your life. It won't be your response to things. Instead, you'll react like an right. atheist even right. though you quote believe as a Christian. Right. And so when Wesley realized this, he, the, everything changed for him. And th- this had happened for Whitfield even earlier. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because Whitfield was an undergrad at Oxford while Wesley was a graduate yeah, student Wes- who ran the Holy Club. It's called the Holy Club. Yeah. Or Whitfield something. was a little younger. Yeah. It was called and the Holy Club. Wesley gave Whitfield a book. I can't remember what it was called, but it was mm-hmm. kind of about Christianity by somebody that wasn't explicit. I think it was William Law's serious call to devout and holy life. I think that might've been. Yeah. But- and so, yeah. And Law's, and I've read that book and it's it in some ways is a wonderful book, but it's basically like you need to get your flipping button gear and actually believe in and follow Jesus because you haven't even really tried yet. And you, you like excuse yourself for all of your stupid laziness. And if you don't like, like he, there's a section where he's like, listen, he's talking about swearing. Basically. He's like, listen, all these people are like, it's so hard to stop swearing. I can't stop swearing. I can't. She's what, like, you haven't even tried. In what time period was this? 1700s. So this would have been like a couple yeah. decades before Wesley. You know, it, it was a recent book. Right. But William Law was basically like, he. so he was basically a, a like a sanctificationalist in the sense that he's like, look, you have to like put forth a ton of human effort to become like Jesus. Now that's true. Right. But if you don't have the pietist piece in place first, then you it's can't also do it. super dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so- yeah. So like that kind of like exertion of effort right. without piety and grace is dead. That's why at High Point Church, we talk about gracious striving. Well, that was what was, what was interesting was that Wesley led Whitfield to Christ in a way, in, in a way. And yeah. then later on when Whitfield's ministry had started to explode right. and Wes, Wesley came back and had this experience where he felt like he had finally felt the love of God in his heart they had conflict then because mm-hmm. now Wesley Whit- Whitfield was the top dog or he was, he was the main guy and, and Wesley was not, you know, he wasn't, yeah. he wasn't the leader. Like he was the leader at the, at the, in their Oxford uh, Holy club. Now he's not the leader anymore. And then Whitfield went out of his way apparently to like, I guess to, to include, promote Wesley's to Wesley, ministry. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, Whitfield understood that he was a, that there was no better preacher in England or maybe the world, but he also understood himself. Yeah. Yeah. But he also understood that he had no idea how to organize anything. That was what, yeah. What the heck you should have just wrote this book. Cause that's, this is all the things that J.I. Packer are saying. Like, yeah, that's what Wesley was incredible at organizing, like yeah. organizing functions and groups and systems. Yeah, Wesley and, was like the perfect CEO. Yeah. And, um, oh, and COO. Whitfield, 
He would have been yeah, CEO. Whitfield would have been CEO. CEO yeah, just but, sets vision. Yeah, but but even what Whitfield didn't even really have the vision. He just preached Christ. Oh, he was just to good everybody. At, okay. Now Whitfield did have a vision in this sense. Whit, Whitfield believed so in seventeen thirty or whatever. If you were an or especially if you were an ordained minister, but if you were a good Anglican, you believed that you couldn't actually preach in an unsanctified location, which means you didn't preach outside of a church building. What the all heck? sermons were given in church buildings. The idea that you'd preach like outdoors, completely wrong. Yeah. So Wesley has this conversion, right? He begins to believe in a doctrine of grace. He begins to realize that the sermons in the Anglican churches are basically just plagiarism. They're basically works-based righteousness. Right. He, like they, they, they read the Bible. There's a Christian liturgy. It's all from Thomas Cromner. It's great stuff. Right. But in the spirit of what's actually said in the churches, it's all about we church people are good people. Right, right, Those right. people are bad people. We're going to go to heaven because we're good people. Right. And Wesley just goes in and starts preaching the gospel of grace. And every time he does, he gets kicked out of the church permanently. <laughs> And after six or seven of these churches, he finally goes to Epworth, which was his father's church because mm-hmm. his dad was a pastor and he preaches at Epworth and they kick him out of Epworth permanently as a preacher. And so he decides to stand. The only place where he legally is allowed to be on the church property is standing on his father's grave. Whoa. And so he stands on his father's grave and preaches a gospel about grace. And so if you can read through his like journal at the time where he's like, I preached at St. Anne's this morning. I've been informed I will never preach there again. And there's like, there's like a bunch of these in his journals. And so basically Wesley now has a message. He has the same passion he had before as this like super driven guy. So, so he still has that William law series called devout and holy life, this super drivenness for holiness. Yeah. Now it's connected to how holiness can actually happen through the grace of God, shredded abroad in our hearts through salvation in Jesus Christ. Right. And the working of the spirit in our lives. And so then these get combined into early this is what methodism is methodism yeah, is yeah. pietism driven hard for holiness right well me- methodism like was if you go to a methodist Correct. church today you're not gonna get that man like yeah. I, I was googling no methodists say aren't methodists yeah i mean that much my greatest so i was a methodist pastor for seven years my greatest sadness was that there was no methodism in the methodist church i mean that's true about like the lutheran church too Oh, yeah, a lot of them. A lot of them. Yeah. Now there are there. I mean, here and there, there are Methodist churches, and there still are Methodists. Like the Wesleyan churches, a lot. Some of those are still pretty Methodist. The Nazarene Church came out of Methodism. A lot of those churches are still pretty like Bible believing and sanctification oriented. And there are some. I mean, the Methodist denomination, the UMC denomination, United Methodist Church, mm-hmm. is like was like I don't know, it's five million people. I mean, there are churches in that denomination yeah. that are Methodist. But like when you would go to like big gather jurisdictional meetings and bigger right. gatherings like that. Nobody breathed a word about John Wesley unless it was Wesley's social views, which were pretty progressive for their time. Which, which, which I think was correct in those times. Right. But not that, but then they extrapolate it it, to whatever seems progressive for our time. Right. Even if these problems have been corrected and we actually need to be more conservative at this moment. Right. That's not good. Yeah. So they think that because Wesley was against making jails more humane, we should all be for abortion, for example. You know what I mean? Or because Wesley right. was definitely, he thought slavery was a horrific thing that therefore any anti-racism thing that could come be come up with is right. something Wesley would be for, right. which right. is almost certainly not true. Right. Yeah. That sort of thing. So yeah, but Wesley was very much, I mean, one of the things that was really cool about Wesley is there's very little that Wesley did that's embarrassing now. Like right. most people, it's like they did something. I mean, what Whitfield owned slaves, Whitfield um, in the orphanages in Georgia encouraged the leadership of them to buy slaves Hmm. because though he was anti-slavery, 
he believed that he could control the oversight of those slaves and they would be treated humanely when they would they were already slaves and mm-hmm. nothing could be done about that. Whitfield. And, this is Whitfield or Wesley? This is what Whitfield. Whitfield. And yeah. he also believed that um he also believe he also like made a bargain because he's like, listen, if I can buy slaves, I can take care of three times as many orphans as if I don't. Right. Right. And he's he's like, and Georgia already has slaves. These people are already enslaved. And so I can treat them better. Right. And I can take care of three times as many orphans. I'm going to buy slaves. Right. And so he did. And so people look at that now as like, you're a you know, Whitfield is a slave holder right, or whatever. Right, and, right. but of course they don't know on, the context. On one level, yeah. And they don't usually, yeah, usually they're ignorant of the context. And even yeah. then they might still condemn it. But yeah, I, th- I just feel like this is, I feel like it's one of those deals where it's like, I mean, like when Whitfield died and had, there was a funeral for him in Philadelphia, a extraordinary amount of black people showed up for it because they saw him as a civil rights hero oh, in wow. his time. Wow. Right. Because he, he, was doing he believed like slavery was, was wrong. I mean, like right. he, he believed that like the slave trade and these, those sorts of things were wrong. Right. And so in that sense, he was like very progressive for his time in terms of like believing in civil rights. Right. But at the same time, he also interacted with some of these slave holding structures and owned slaves himself in, in the sense that they were part of his, um, in fact, I think his wife owned slaves. And then I think he had the orphanages. I think both of those are true. So actually, um, John John Piper's biographical talk on Whitfield that you can get at the Desiring God website. Yeah, he does like ten minutes on Whitfield's relationship with this with slavery and race. Yeah, and I think that I think he does a pretty good job with it. Yeah. So I would encourage that. But anyway, both in terms of revival, both of these guys. Yeah. So so the, the thing Wesley was stuck on was okay. I believe in God in my heart. I'm a Pietist, right? Mm-hmm. I believe I have, a, I have a burning faith. And I believe in methods. I believe that discipline is necessary to pursue sanctification. And that was a mixture found nowhere. Right. Right. Most of the Calvinists at that time had fallen into a kind of antinomianism that like, if God elected you and you're saved, you were chosen from the foundation of the world. Pursuing holiness is no big deal. There were, however, some prominent um, Calvinist Methodists in the early years. And a lot of Methodists who are, who were rabidly Arminian tried to cover over those people mm-hmm. like they didn't exist. But Whitfield was a, was a Calvinist. Right. And there's another guy whose name I can't remember right now, but who's very prominent in the early movement, who was also a Calvinist. And some of the funders, some people who gave money in early Methodism were Calvinists. Yeah. And they absolutely believed in holiness, that you had to pursue holiness with sweat right. and tears. But you had to do it by grace. And you were elect of God to do it, they believed. Yeah, but they I were Methodists. No I don't question. think that Calvinism negates the responsibility to to pursue holiness, to. right? Yeah, I think that, that if you yeah. think that about your Calvinism, you probably. But by have... the 1700s, a number of Calvinist movements had degraded, and right. they weren't. They, you know, Calvin would have recognized them any more than Wesley recognizes would have recognized what, Methodism. Methodism today. now, yeah, mm-hmm. that that seems to be the case about a lot of this. A lot of these guys' theologies, like they've been mm-hmm. boiled down. Calvinism has been boiled down so much or over abandoned. the years. Oh, yeah. For Calvinism, I think it is boiled down to being too simplistic right. and then people think their way back out to things badly. And I, so right. I do, for Calvinism, I think for Methodism, it's just abandoned. Yeah. People just abandoned true. it. Yeah. So, so Wesley had to make this decision. This happens in revivals that there's usually some kind of new measure, right? Something new is, is done that wasn't done before. Yeah. And somebody decides it's not a degradation of the Christian message to do it. So in, the 1700s at this time, it was preaching in non-consecrated spaces. Right. 
right? So you could only preach in churches. Right. Well, Wesley got kicked out of all, all the churches. Whitfield had already taken to the fields because he had this huge booming baritone voice and he could just stand in a field on an elevated structure and preach to a couple thousand people. In Philadelphia, I think it was in Philadelphia, Ben uh, Benjamin Franklin, yeah. he was just like skeptical that Whitfield could preach to so many thousands of yeah. people. And he and, could hear them blocks away. Yeah, and they, yeah. he did an experiment or whatever. Yeah, and, and then also like in America, I think they did this in, in England too, but in America, they, the people helping with the, with the revivals would select places that were acoustically well-suited. Right. To right. Pre so there are some places in the Hudson River Valley in New York where he preached where because of the way the valley runs, you could hear him for like a mile. Yeah. You know, and so by doing that, there was a place near where I lived called Pulpit Rock where people went for revivals. It was the middle of cow country. Yeah. But um, people would go out there for a revival for like preaching yeah. because if you stood in front of this like cave in the rock, it would project your voice out for like 200 yards. Yeah. And you were just like speaking like as loud as I'm speaking now. And so, th so it was a revival site, like during Finney's wow. revivals, I think he preached there. Wow. It's the middle of nowhere. Right. Yeah. And they said people would come to watch Whitfield just because he was, like weird and interesting. Like people, like it was kind of yeah. an event. Like you tell your neighbors. Right. Or, because most preachers went to seminary, right? Which makes yeah. sense. Right. And the way they were taught to preach in seminary was like the old English style. Yeah. Which was mostly Puritan, which was like point one, one A. Right. One A, one. Right. One B. Very methodical. Yeah. Very methodical. Yeah. Very logical. Very dry. Right. Also usually. Yeah. Um, and Whitfield had gone to um, actor college. Yeah. <laughs> he was an actor. Yeah. And so he preached like an actor. Yeah. And it was incredibly engaging. Yeah. And so um, that super engaging preaching mixed with field preaching kind of lit the thing on fire social media wise. People heard about it. People wanted to come. People came in droves. Right. But the thing is, is that Whitfield had no vision for what to do after he preached. Yeah. He'd preach, invite people to believe in Jesus. And then I don't know. Right. And so this is where Wesley comes in. He's like, okay, we got to have a plan. Right. And so he creates the class system based on the, the prototype of the Holy club, but very different because right. now he believes in grace and salvation. And so, right. on. so what Wesley, what Wesley did was instead of just preach, um, one Wesley scholar I knew said this, whereas Whitfield would preach the gospel and invite people to be saved in the revivals. What Wesley did was he would go to a place where people would naturally gather and he would preach a message that would not resolve in the gospel. Mm -hmm. He would preach usually on death or hell, and he would often do it in the presence of death. So he would go to like a scaffold where somebody was just hanged huh. and he would say, this is going to be you. Huh. You came to watch wow. this guy hang because you wanted to see a spectacle of this man's death, but you are as good as dead. Hmm. You will soon be as dead as this man. Right. And so people would literally be looking at a dead body and be like, I'm going to be dead before I know it. And they say, listen, you are likely going to go to hell. And he would like sort of preach the righteousness of God and the, and the mm -hmm. truth of sin and so on. He's like, listen, you don't have to go to hell. Come up front and sign up for one of these classes. So he didn't say believe in Jesus, right? He was like, come up front yeah. and there's five people up here. Sign up for one of these classes that's happening in your town tonight and go to it. Right. And so he would sign people up for classes right. at the class. They would read the gospel. Right. They would come to Jesus, but they'd already been in a sanctification based small group community. There was like four rules to these classes. Right. I, I read them the other night. I can't remember what they were. But was, you got to confess what's happening in your life. There was these rules right. of kind of how this was, how each meeting yeah. was going to go confession down. Confession of sin, also confession of fear. So yeah. like if yeah. I was in, if I was in right. something with you and I feared for you, mm -hmm. like you seem mm -hmm. to be behaving in such a way. Yes. I wouldn't say it. you're an a-hole. Yeah. A 
right. you suck. You're not a Christian. Right. I would say, Andy, right. I fear for you. Right. You're doing this. Yeah. And this I'm is where afraid. I think this is going to go or something. Right. Like, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And so like, I would confront yeah. your sin by saying what I feared for you. Right. Does that right. make sense? Right. And then there were other things as well. And so yeah. if you went to a class meeting, then you could get a ticket to be a communicant that you were prepared to take communion. And then you could go take communion at a, at well, and churches. there was, there was certain classes within the class. Like, I think there was some of that. There was yeah. one, there was one high level, like you could get invited to this, to a higher level. And it was like once or twice a week. And there's only four people in your group. And it was, yeah, I don't know enough about that to come out of, but yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I, so but, uh, when, when Whit, one of the examples of the difference here is when Whitfield came to America, he preached to lots more people. And he was extremely popular. Mm-hmm. He was one of the most well-known men in America. The only, the only minister who, had, beside, well, before the media age, the only minister who was better well-known in America than Whitfield was Francis Asbury. Yeah. Which we'll get to. And this is like Asbury Seminary and Asbury College is literally where the revival is happening, right? Yeah, right. He, Asbury was the greatest American revivalist. But anyway, but, and he was a Methodist. Can we talk a little bit about... I Wait, know, let, me, let me just finish with the Whitfield okay. thing. When Whitfield came to America, he preached to piles and piles of people. Like tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people yeah. made professions of faith. But he said, um, even though he was more popular than Wesley, he said, I, Wesley was wise and I was a fool because my people have become a rope of sand. Yeah. One of the great sadnesses of the first great awakening is that 20 or 25 years later, church attendance had dropped basically to where it was in a little wow. bit before where it was at the beginning of the, of the great awakening. Now yeah. that may partly be because of like, you know, the American revolution <laughs> right? and some things that like dislocations, but it didn't stick. And one of the things that's interesting is though the second great awakening is looked at as a theologically less pure awakening. The sticking power was significantly more the most problematic theological, theologically, the most problematic person in the second great awakening is Charles Finney, but Finney's converts stuck way better than anywhere else, except in Methodism. Methodism was the only movement other than Finney's where people seem to stick. Yeah. Does that make sense? And that's probably because Wesley got them belonging even before believing or believing and belonging came together at the same time. Yeah. And that organization led to longer term holiness. And that's the only real movement that changed the country. Right. Like England changed mm-hmm. because of the evangelical awakenings. And it wasn't because Whitfield preached to so many people. It was because those people got into classes, those classes pursued holiness right. and those people could, could then mobilize together and do things together that were meaningful. Right. right. Uh, I do think it's like, obviously Whitfield and Wesley are the, po- are the, are the main popular guys in this time period with this revival. But, but somebody who didn't really get as much recognition until after they died was, Edwards, right? Mm-hmm. And he was in the same time period. Yeah. And he was friends with Whitfield, at least. I don't know if Wesley... Yeah, but... yeah, because Edwards was exclusively American. I'm not... I don't think he ever went to see England. I don't think so. Yeah. Not that I know of. And Wesley... I don't think Wesley ever came back here after Georgia. I don't think he made trips here. Oh, really? No, I think he Wesley was... Done like, with America. Yeah. yeah, the funny thing about it is that... Um, but that's the thing, is like America is so different. Like, if you think about it this way, Francis Asbury... So part of the issue here too is this like these these men were also strange. Like Wesley had one of the strongest physical constitutions of every any Christian leader ever probably. He rode his horse everywhere. He was riding his horse in his like 80s. Um he would sit at his desk with this like inflatable like butt pillow and he would push himself up and down like he was riding a horse while he was studying. 
What? Just... He, partly because he got used to reading while riding his horse. So while he was riding his horse to places, okay. he would be reading and studying and preparing sermons. Yeah. He literally wrote and read on, on horseback. Yeah. That's... But, but then in addition, he would- Is that what his, you do? He didn't want his quads to get weak. Yeah. And so they would say into his 80s, he just, walked as vigorously as a man in his 20s. Yeah. Right. Now, yeah. Wesley also had some strange, Wesley was really into health. He had some strange views on health. One time, he, in fact, he wrote a scathing letter, letter one time about the Port Authority holding up one of his cases of wine. So sometimes Methodists have, were like notorious for being teetotalers and against alcohol. That's because in America, they were. But Wesley was not against wine. He was yeah. a true European. But also he had this electric chair in his house where when he would get sick, he would get in the chair yeah. and, and they would run electric current through his body. And it was believed that that would like actually help you get over sicknesses better, which what? is kind of strange. But yeah. like, but, but it, what it does show is, is that Wesley was really concerned with being on the cutting edge. In that sense, Wesley was very much, one of the reasons I like Wesley is because he was a conservative and a liberal at the same time. He was progressive in the sense that he wanted to learn all the newest things he could possibly learn including science and right. even maybe like strange medical cures. But right. he also was working to record all the medicinal knowledge of England that was being lost because of the new medical stuff that was happening in the country. Right. So he believed that like old women had Anglo-Saxon cures, herbal cures for like sicknesses that were all going to be lost now that we had these like pills at apothecaries. Right. And he's like, we can't, we don't want to lose that other knowledge. So he was very focused on like in, in medicine, conserving the old while getting the new. Right. He was very much a both and kind of person. And it's one of the reasons why Methodists have been conservative and liberal in America, because Wesley fulfills them both. Right. And that's one of the reasons why I do really like Wesley as, even though like he was kind of a jerk in a lot of ways and man, he was a loser with women and there were some negative things about him. He was he an was, Arminian too, right? Yeah. Yeah. But he was a very biblical one. Yeah. And so I don't have a problem with his Arminianism. He, he yeah. was a very big God Arminian. Okay. And so it doesn't bother me that he's Arminian. Right. I only dislike Arminianism when it's like, it like veers into open theism or like, isn't serious about yeah. sanctification or something yeah. like that. Or like yeah. God is small because he doesn't know the future or something. Yeah. So Which, that, and that was not Wesley. Yeah. Wesley was like a Puritan Arminian. Yeah. Well, what, the, what, what do you say about, uh, I guess what was Jonathan Edwards' uh, role in the in this first Great Awakening? Yeah, so Ed, like, oh, Jonathan Edwards. So Edwards was a, mainly a preacher. Yeah, and his own. I what I read about his own church, they did they did not take well to him. Like people like in there, ultimately they they just were like this doesn't make sense. There a lot of it went over their heads. I mean that's yeah. that's what in the marriage. Yeah. I mean yeah. Uh, so one of the things that people often often think is because they some of them have read an excerpt from Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, they imagine this fundamentalist preacher yeah. who is maybe anti-intellectual, who just is telling people they're going to hell and is able to scare people, just like Puritans burned witches. You know what I mean? Dude, like, I think he might be the smartest, like they say anti-intellectual. He might be the smartest out of all these guys. Yeah, I mean, when people say who is the smartest American ever— um, Ed, for people who know, yeah, Edwards is always on the list of top ten. Is always top really? ten, right? Yeah. Um. <clears throat> so yeah. So, but the thing about Edwards was, Jeez, man, he kind of read the Times. He was incredibly devoted to Jesus, and he was living in a time among Puritans where the fervor of their parents who came to America had been gone, had been lost. Mm -hmm. So the early Puritans were incredibly spiritual people yeah. who had been kicked out of their country, who had lived in the Netherlands who had been abused and cheated, who had come to America and had to create something out of like literally nothing mm -hmm. who were starving. And they did it because they 
they believed in building a city that was like a like shining on a hill. Right. And so the devotion of those generations was extraordinarily powerful, even though there were a lot of wicked people too. Right. By the time you get to Edwards, you know, Massachusetts and Plymouth are like pretty normal. They're settled. Right. They're, they're urban, more educated. And people had just frankly gotten really complacent spiritually. Yeah. And so Edwards just began to preach the gospel really. Yeah. And he just, he, he was able to create vivid images, even though he was not a vivid preacher. Yeah. In fact, they say the, the, the sermon that kind of broke out the revival, he had like, he had been sick the week before he read it in a complete monotone. Really? Yeah. He would read like seven inch by three inch wide pieces of paper <laughs> and he would just hold them and read them. He was like the most unengaging preacher you could imagine. Yeah. But the language of his sermons, both the vividness and the content of them were very yeah. engaging. And so yeah. for people who had any kind of ears to hear, it was very powerful. And so Edwards became like yeah. a revival, like a, a revival rose up around him, but it just goes to show that like God can use uh, Whitfield, who is like this like actor, yeah. like very like showy and God used him. So like yeah. when people are like, well, Steve Furtick's not a Christian. I'm like, he's too showy and emotional. I'm like, well, you need to judge him on his content. If his content right. is bad, fine. Right. But just because somebody is emotional and showy and, showy, and yeah. whatever, that doesn't, that's not Steve bad. Steve Furtick might be a terrible example because he, I think he has bad theology, but I think I don't, I don't have a problem with his preaching. That may be. I think the thing that makes Steve Furtick weird to some of us is I think he's really, really tried to include black preaching and black themes, black theological themes in his preaching. So to be a effective multi-ethnic preacher and black churches focus a lot more on themes of blessing than white churches generally do. Yeah. And so I think that he says some things that feel wrong, but I haven't like, I, yeah, anyway, so the, my, that's not my point. My point here is just that like, just because a preacher is exciting, doesn't make them bad. And right, right. just because a preacher isn't exciting, doesn't make, doesn't them, make them bad. That, yeah. Right. Um, and so right. we God a, can use yeah. different people. Right. Well, one of the weird things about Edwards too, where we, Andrew and I, Somebody at our wedding gave Andrew a book called Marriage to a Difficult Man. This is a book about Sarah Edwards Edwards, and her marriage to her her husband, uh, Jonathan Jonathan Edwards. And one of the things that we read in it was that on, and I might botch this, but on on his long trips between cities, uh, Edwards would... um, basically like he was, he was so smart. He would like, he would just have these ideas and he would take a piece of paper that, and he would associate his idea with the piece of paper and he would take the piece of paper and he would pin it to his jacket. And so every time he had an idea he would do this. And then by the time he got home, he had all these different pieces of paper with no writing and just pinned onto his jacket. And then he would go straight to his office and he would take each piece of paper and remember what each individual piece of paper what idea was associated with that piece of paper and then write the idea on the piece of paper, which mm-hmm. is psychotic. It's like insane. How could you remember all those? It's just yeah. insane. So he would do, he was a weird yeah. guy too, in a but, way. But I, I mean, I think he was a true genius. I do too. And geniuses, that's how they are. Yeah. I, like, I, yeah you I know, agree. when a mind can hold and carry so many things and, and it's very active in its processing of them right. together, right. which Edwards clearly was. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I, I, I am not anything like Edwards, but like, that's kind of how I experience my mind right. is like, my I mind can't. generates so many ideas so fast and they feel brilliant <laughs> and they're not all brilliant, you know, and yeah. Edwards ideas are probably significantly better than most of mine. Sure. But like, I, I know what that's like. And it's like, oh my gosh, like, and yeah. you want to capture them because you're like, this is really helpful. Right. Right. And, right. 
Yeah. yeah and, and especially back then when you couldn't just pull your phone out and write it down, you yeah. know what I mean? He had to, I don't know. Yeah. And I mean, this gets to things like, I mean, a lot of these revivalists, like, like it'd be really interesting. I wish I could sit down with all their wives and say, right. what was it like to be married to this man? And right. to see how they've emotionally dealt with it. Because right. on one level, you'd well, be like, Sarah Edwards this went is- crazy for a couple of weeks. I mean, she, and then she came out of that apparently mm-hmm. like stronger than Edwards had ever seen her before. And, but she yeah. went crazy for, for a little while there. Because- yeah. Well, cause they've got, they had a bunch of children. Yeah. And Edwards truly was in his study 14 hours a day. Now he was interruptible, right. but like, that's what he did. Like yeah. he got up in the morning and he went into his study and yeah. he spent one hour a night with his kids. And that's not one hour with each kid with all the, kids. he spent an hour with his children every like day. 40 kids. That 40. They had like, I want to say there were between seven and 12. Yeah. I don't know there was a lot. Ones, there was a yeah. lot. Yeah. And the, the, the thing is though, is people go like, well, that's must've been such an unfulfilling marriage. And that sounds, and the kids old, that sounds terrible. Abusive, whatever. Yeah. No. And the thing is, is like, well, families, and children's development is often profoundly affected by their expectations. Yeah. Right. Like I was telling somebody just recently, like, you know, when I was a kid, my dad probably played with me like five times. Now he took me on trips. Like we went camping or we went fishing. Yeah. And especially as I got older, as I, as I broke like eight to 10 years old, mm-hmm. we did more stuff together. But like my dad never like played with me mm-hmm. as a kid. Right. And now it's like, now a woman's like, oftentimes women are like, well, you're a bad father if you don't do that. Like my wife and and my wife is wonderful. Okay. But my wife kind of expected me to play Barbies with my kids when they were like 17 months old. Really? Yeah. And so I would lay on the floor with them and they would like babble stuff at me and I would like move the doll around. And sometimes I would fall, I would fall asleep a good bit of the time actually, (laughs) because it was, I was exhausted in those days. And, but I would like, I would like sit with my very little children and I would play dolls with them. And in my mind, that's always been insane. Yeah. And my wife is not insane. She's like, she's, she's very great. Yeah. But the those cultural expectations found yeah. their way into her mind and into mine. And yeah. like, so in the 1700s, the idea that a man would play with his children or like spend a lot of time with his children each day was just completely out of people's yeah. minds. People weren't thinking. And that. when kids don't have these expectations they don't seem harmed by it. Right. Right. And so part of it is like, there's this interplay between cultural yeah, expectations and human that's actions. Weird. Yeah. And so one of the reasons I think why marriages are really struggling <laughs> right now is we, we, is that both men and women have a bad deal because we yeah. expect too much from both of them. Yeah. Kids are supposed to sort of get everything. Right. And I'm right. like, the kids have their foot on our necks. And I was just kids about have to, to say to profoundly diminish in order for people to be happy again. And I think that includes kids because I think as we've, we've given kids the world, right. it's made them anxious and suicidal and isolated. And I was angry just, and- I was about to say, yeah, it seems like the more, it was like, so for people who don't know, uh, it, it wasn't, it didn't have a negative impact on Edwards's kids. Um, as far as like, it doesn't seem to based on their accomplishments, right. That, mm-hmm. that the Edwards bloodline went on to be apparent, like, I guess the most influential bloodline throughout the 1800s in America. Yeah. In America. That's probably true. And there's more lawyers, the vice president, the, I mean, lawyers, doctors, politicians, like yeah. if you don't know, from, Aaron Burr is right. Is Edward's grandson. Ed- Edward's, grandson. Edward's grandson. grandson. Yeah. Yeah. And and he um, Burr killed Hamilton. Hamilton. That's how everybody yeah. will know him. But like, um, but 
you know, it, it's not just, I mean, Burr also obviously read was a real history book about Hamilton too, before you yeah, can get yeah. mad at Burr. I know. Right. Don't but like, but also, um, it's, it wasn't like Burr was like the only one, like, like, yeah. like hundreds of people. Hundreds, yeah, right. yeah. All the kids had kids had kids and right. they in, in, influ- there's considered to be the most influential family of the 1800s in America, mm-hmm. which is a, a, I don't know. Yeah. You can't it's, do it all. I mean, my, my wife would probably say something like, yeah, but the history books do not record people's emotional well-being or their happiness. It may have also been one of the most unhappy families in the history of the world. We don't know. And yeah. that's true. That's it could, true. It could have been. I feel like that's. Um, but sometimes th- th- that's one of the sad things is, is that happiness and accomplishment often do not go hand in hand in human life. Right. And we all want to believe that if we were, we all had a good psychologist, we would be both. We could be we happy could maximize and both. Yeah. Right. And I am just not sure that's true. No, it's bullcrap. I don't think you can be successful because part of being successful is, is sacrificing things right. that you love. And yeah. I think one of the problems with today and one of the problems with today, I think, is. Whichever you choose, you get to my age of life, like 45 years old, yeah. you start looking back and you start looking about what you did. Are you 45? I'm 45. Yeah. And you start going, did I choose correctly? Yeah. Cause I, cause in my case, I would say I chose success more than I chose happiness. I don't think of myself as an unhappy person, right. but when I decide what am I going to be about, right. I choose meaning right. and I seek happiness in the meaning rather than doing what I think will please me. Right. Right. Or what I think will like even sometimes even be enriching for me or that I'll just enjoy. I'll forego that to produce. Right. And there's this level of that that's not good, but like that's, that's the tenor of my life. Yeah. And so when I look back, it's easy to go, well, you know, I could have just lived in Florida and I could have just chosen a different life. And, and maybe I should have done that because here's the things that are hard about my life or here's the things where my kids didn't like about growing up. But then at the same time I can go, yeah, but I would give up all of the stuff that I've accomplished too. Yeah, there's a weird thing because part of me, when I've thought about this, as I'm like, I'm 20 years younger than you, over 20 years younger than you, um, is like somebody's got to do it. Like when I look around at my generation and everybody pursuing happiness and being unsuccessful and like they're not... We're, my generation is not good at things like we're not we're not good at things you know we're we're all we care about is trying to be happy and we're completely miserable we're not happy that's a whole different problem but like if i have to you know if i'm like okay do i sacrifice some things f- for success like i'm just like somebody's got to do that and yeah. like nowadays compared to back then that back then i think more people even 25 30 40 50 years ago were willing to sacrifice happiness for the success mm-hmm. now less people are willing to sacrifice it which gives yeah. me a higher percentage of success i think yeah so people don't want to believe anymore how hard it is to be successful they think people are successful right. because of privilege they already Ex- have right right but the privilege like the reason why edward's family was quote so privileged was because of the intellectual achievements right. of Edwards and yeah. how those achievements were demanded and passed on to his children because th- these right. it's not like ephemeral like they're it's a real achievement. Yeah. And so people don't get that. So the so but this gets back to like these the women who paid the price for this, right? right. Like Edward Sarah Edwards had a had a more difficult life than her if her husband was not a pastor, philosopher and revivalist. Um uh what not Wesley um Whitfield preached yeah. on his honeymoon like a, f- a few sermons on his honeymoon. Didn't you tell me that his wife heckled him or something? Like no, a, that's Wesley. Wesley. So after okay. Wesley lost his second shot at love. Yeah. So Sophie Hopke was probably not a well-conceived thing, and it's probably fine that he didn't marry her. Later on in his ministry, he met a woman who was in the Methodist movement. She was 
really godly, energetic, loving, and Wesley like fell in love. John Wesley fell in love with her. I think her name was Grace something. And his brother Charles thought that it would tank the movement. That if we- that if Wesley married, he would be happy. And yeah. it like, who knows what this woman would do to him because she had a lot of influence over him because he was in, totally in love with her. And so while Gosh, Wesley and yes. Wesley didn't seal the deal, like he kind of he dragged his feet a little bit. Yeah. And um, while Wesley was on a trip, John Wesley was on a trip, Charles Wesley, his brother, like married her off to somebody else. Gosh. Yeah. And Dude, John Wesley like wanted to kill him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that but was... Charles was the was the musical leader of the revival. And so the story, uh, Robert Tuttle tells this story. He's a Wesley scholar that like, like Whitfield went to where John Wesley was staying and like got in the bed with him. Like he was in, in his bed, just, just completely disconsolate. And he wanted to like never speak to his brother again the rest of his life. And like, apparently like Whitfield got in the bed with him and held him. Right. And weird. Yeah. Yeah. If you're depressed, don't, I'm not probably going to do that. Um, but, <laughs> but like, and, and like, and like they cried and Wesley, yeah. John Wesley forgave Charles and the revival went on another 30 years. Wow. And so, but yeah, but so then kind of on the rebound, um, John Wesley married this woman, Molly something. Huh. And it was, she was a widow. There was a joke about her that her husband had died at sea. Because yeah. he had cast himself into the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> That's and so this woman didn't know what she was getting into with Wesley. <laughs> I, I think she thought he was just going to give up so his whole life to just be with her or something. And she got angry. And so then she would come to meetings and throw stuff at him. <laughs> yeah. And yell and stuff. And yeah. finally he sent her away or she, she left to live with her daughter or something. And he said in Latin about it to a friend, I have not sent her away. I will not recall her. So like good riddance, right? He's yeah. like, I, I'm not going to get remarried. I'm not going to divorce her. I didn't tell her she had to leave, but I'm not going to ask her to come back. <laughs> so yeah, Wesley, Wesley's life with women was very who, tragic. Who, who, there was one guy that you said, and then we can move on. I don't know who this was. It was a preacher who was being heckled by people and went and beat the crap out of them. And then, yeah, continued. that's the second great awakening. Okay. Okay. Uh, I, man, I can't think of the guy's name right now. Cartwright, okay. somebody Cartwright. Uh, I want to say Paul, but I think that's I'm thinking wrong. Of Bill Cartwright played for the Bulls in yeah. the eighties. Yeah, but he was like this big burly dude, yeah. and he would preach camp meetings in the like in Illinois, okay. that that kind of region, Illinois, Wisconsin ish yeah. kind of place. And yeah, there was one camp meeting where there's people sitting on basically cut logs. He's preaching on like a makeshift stage. There's yeah. tents everywhere because people literally come out in their horses and buggies and yeah. they set up tents. Yeah, and they would camp there for six or seven days and hear sermons and draw close to the Lord. Yeah. And there were these guys that show up as camping like drunks as skunks. And yeah. there's like 10 of them <laughs> and they're just hooting and yelling and, and Kare just can't finish the sermon. It's like, it's too disruptive. And so he gets off stage after he gives them a couple of warnings and they don't respond. And he, yeah, he finally gets off stage. He beats, he fights all 10 of them at the same time, beats them all up. Now they're drunk, Yeah, but, but that's he's still, still yeah. I mean, this is, these are, this is the 1800s. Like right. you get hit with a bottle in the head, you could die. Yeah. You know, and he beats all 10 of them up drags them all to the front row, forces them to sit in the seat. He says, if you, if you don't shut up and come down here, I'll beat you again. They're conscious. Yeah. He gets up on stage, finishes his sermon. Yeah. Right. And piles, piles of men 
get saved. Yeah. But piles of people get saved, including all 10 come up to the altar call wow. of these men who are drunk. And so like, it's like, it's like that. I mean, the people who took the gospel West in America were these kind of men, right? The average. So, okay. So like, I don't want to, we're kind of jumping around. So like, I, I yeah. do think relative to the lifestyle that these, these evangelists, these leaders yeah. gave their lives to the movement of God. Yeah. And there is not strong evidence that their wives and their children resented them for it. Right. Except for Molly Wesley's wife, who yeah. was probably crazy. Yeah. I mean, the rumors about her was she was a self-centered, angry, resentful woman. I okay? think that they died at sea because he threw himself overboard. Yeah. The there funniest. was some rumor that like maybe, <laughs> maybe Wesley shouldn't marry her. Um, well, I, okay. I don't remember. I don't remember where I read this, but like I had a joke somewhere that like maybe he shouldn't have married her because maybe the guy was alive somewhere. <laughs> he had just faked his death. <laughs> just you know? faked, yeah. Um, that's so. That's, yeah. So anyway, wow. so, so, um, but like this is, this is part of the issue. The message to single men real quick. Yeah. Don't be so desperate. Man. Yeah. You never just, you know. Yeah. But Wesley was in his fifties. Right. That's true. When he married this lady. Maybe if you get to fifties, you can be that desperate, yeah. but be careful. Yeah. But, but I will say this. He married her against the advice of his closest friends. Yeah. That's, that's his good. friends would have gone along with him marrying grace. Most of them. Yeah. Because she was a godly woman. Yeah. I think Charles Wesley, I sinned, frankly, I think he did something wrong. Um, and I, cause I think grace would have accepted Wesley for his, who he was and known what kind of life that he was committed to living. Yeah. And she would, I think she would have accepted that. I think with Molly, she did not And his friends said, don't marry her. And he did it anyway. Yeah. So I would say to younger people, don't, don't, when faithful people in your life, multiple of them say, yeah, this is not this. a good match. Man, be very, very careful. Yeah. So anyway, so, um, so what I, what I want to say is not like that, like Edwards didn't pay enough attention to his wife. What I would say is being Edward's wife was probably really hard. Yeah. But being Edward's is also probably really hard. Right. And they embraced a really hard life right. to honor and glorify Jesus, the Christ. And and so like, I think it's really important to recognize people talk all about like wanting to build churches and grow the gospel and do all this kind of stuff. But if you look into history and you look at the people who made enormous differences, right. They gave up everything. Right. And including stuff where that we would say now, in many cases, it's sinful to give that up. Yeah. So like when Adoniram Judson went to Burma, he knew he and his wife were going to die. Right. And his wife did die. And the reason his wife died was because she tried to nurse a child and take care of him in a Bur Bur Burmese prison where he was hung upside down and mosquitoes bit the bottom of his feet all night. And he would have maybe died in there if she wasn't taking care of him. And that broke her health so that she ended up dying. And so did the child. Right. Right. And like, there's a number of missionaries, wives went crazy. Hudson yeah. Taylor eventually sent his wife back to England. Most of them sent their kids to boarding schools. And these, these people like literally gave up everything. Yeah. And when you, yeah. in, in, most people have no idea what it takes. Right. And one of the reasons why I think people have heard, some people have heard me say this. One of the reasons why I think that there's not a good crop of people entering ministry right now or going into missions is because our culture creates people incapable of that kind of sacrifice. Of that, that, They're yeah. just too weak. Like if you just like flip through your phone all day and you eat a bunch right. of sugar and carbs and right. you don't exercise and you're not that disciplined and right. you're not, you don't pursue an intellectual life in your studies right. and you don't you watch like, a bunch of porn and watch a bunch of porn yeah. and you're like a slave to your sexuality. Right. Right. You're just, you just don't have the stuff. Right. And so and if you want, if we want, right. if you want to be that kind of person, you have to start with, 
gracious striving. Right. You got to go read the gospel of grace and then read William law too, <laughs> and get in your heart, this idea that like you, you need to become an Oak of righteousness, right? You need to become this towering, incredibly strong thing yeah. that is resilient and powerful. Right. And that is willing to make enormous sacrifices. And because God, like, I, th I think some people want to say, no, God is about health. He's about like emotional health and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And like, God wouldn't want you to do something that wasn't good for your emotional health. And I just, no, that's bull I just crap. don't the, see how that's the, true you in the can Bible or in the history of the church. Later from what we were just talking about to Spurgeon, who was, he was depressed his whole life. I mean, that's like, I mean, that's, I mean, mm -hmm. the, at least he was depressed and he just never got over it. Like he was always just depressed. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that, I mean, I don't know that much about Spurgeon's depression. That's I, that, so I heard that from Matt Chandler. Okay. That, that Spurgeon was depressed his entire life and he never got over it. And that just, wasn't Martin Lloyd-Jones. That was Spurgeon. That was Spurgeon. Okay. Yeah. I, it, I don't right, think it was Martin. Right. I know. And I think there were some people even, like, even so, if you've been in ministry and you've been depressed for two years, you need to quit the ministry. Right. And I think like there are some people who are just like, no. Yeah. Like I, like I felt that way before that like my life, I have felt like in ministry sometimes where like, I'm not getting a good life. My kids aren't getting a good life. My wife isn't getting a good life because yeah. I've chosen to do this. Yeah. And maybe I should just quit. And like my, res my response to that is, is like, because I've read these other great heroes, people right. I consider great heroes of the faith. Right. And I look at the lives of the apostles themselves and the life of Jesus himself. Right. I think, no, like right. these people, like, I, I don't think like people talk about Jesus going away to rest and how he like, was like very emotionally healthy. Yeah. His own mother thought he was going insane. Right. Right. Like he was preaching so much. He was spending himself so profoundly that his family tried to take him away from the ministry because they thought he was crazy. And he said, no. Right. Right. The, there was a sermon that you gave maybe a year ago, two years ago, where he talked about like the testimony, something along the lines of like the testimony that Christians will give might not all be about how much healing that they've received, but it'll right. about, be about the fact that they never gave up. Right. And I think that and how that's, much they bore. Yeah. Yeah. What, wait, what was that? How much they've, they've how much carried. They've carried. Yeah. yeah. And, and how think, strong God made them to be able to carry it. Yeah. Cause I think people nowadays do, they do measure Christianity or sanctification by how much you've healed, not how resilient you are. And, yeah. all, and, and not and, that healing isn't important, but God, uh, the sometimes God doesn't want you to heal from things right now. I mean, there, like there's that. Yeah. God, God exposes us to hardship. Right. Yeah. And right. whether that's missionally speaking, where you like you go and preach Christ among Muslims and that's what you give your life to do. Yeah. Or it's you, for reasons you have no idea, you feel like you were born in the wrong body, so to speak. Right. And you don't choose to mutilate your own physical body, right. but choose to figure out how to negotiate this difficulty right. through faith in Christ and right. through loving others and receiving love from others. Yeah. Like, or whether like you got divorced. And like, yeah. maybe you were stupid and it happened to you, or maybe you felt like you did a pretty good job and they just left you. Yeah. Like you're going to have to bear a certain amount of shame that maybe you don't even deserve. And whatever cost that creates in your life, mm -hmm. you have to bear Like I know a woman in our church who has, I think six children, six or seven children. Wow. Her husband became an alcoholic, abandoned their family. Wow. And he's probably mentally ill. And yeah. so she has children, some of whom struggle with mental illness, who are abandoned by their father, who doesn't speak to them who encourages some of the worst things about them right? and not the best. She has to make this income. He didn't pay me much for child support. It's like, like thing after thing, after thing, after thing. Right. And she hasn't given up. Yeah. She's trying to be a good mom and she's loves Jesus. Right. She's doing the best she can as far as I can tell. 
And I, she's like a hero of the faith to me. Like, 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 I don't know if I put her like right up with like a Hudson Taylor, Hmm. but like, she is a, like, I put her above me. Right. No question. And I'm trying to be a hero for the faith. I want so much to be that for other people to help them. But I put her above me because I think what she's bearing is is harder. More. Yeah. Yeah. And And so I think that, and so therefore I think not only do we need this for missionary zeal and for people to go into the ministry and to preach the gospel, Mm -hmm. to be willing to face hard things and to give up even quote emotional well-being. I think that also like, we have to preach that message to people because some people are going to be trying to get over drugs and their parents right, were prostitutes right. or they were prostitutes. Right, and right. like, there's all kinds of crap in their life that right. they don't even know if they'll ever get over. It. And yeah. they're just like, well, it's does Jesus to, love yeah. me? And like, can, right. can I, yes. what, what is, what is Jesus pleased about with me? And sometimes it's just like, it's you, that you haven't given up. Right. The right. fact that you haven't given up, Jesus right. is so pleased with you. Right. Even if you didn't lead a revival or whatever. Right. So, well, well right. So let's, so uh, I think bearing difficulty and feeling like, I mean, Christians have always given up the quote, good life of pleasure. Right. And that includes, I think, sometimes psychological ease and like just ease of happiness. Like, I would say up until, I'm not going to say up until America, but maybe to 400 years ago, 500 years ago, that was kind of in, that was kind of like embedded into what it meant to be a Christian mm-hmm. is to just give up a bunch of really great things. I mean, yeah. until. Until America became really mainstream, or I mean, sorry, uh, Christianity became really mainstream in America and in England, you just had to give up a bunch of really great things because you were going to be persecuted, maybe killed, put in prison. Yeah, that's certainly the world of the New Testament in the first 200 years of the church. Yeah. You know, And, and so like people, the kind of conversations that people have now are classic conversations of people who've like lived in privilege. Like, like America for a long time, you didn't formally give up anything for Jesus culturally. Mm-hmm. You were supposed to give up a lot for Jesus that the right. other people were doing, right. Right. but most people just didn't. Right. And so now like where there's scorn or people don't like you, they think you're an idiot or you could lose right. your job or not get a job or whatever. Right. People are like, well, Jesus can't ask this. I mean, it's like, well, Jesus asked his own death of himself. Right. Right. And right. it, the Bible doesn't say he takes that away from us. Okay. Right. One of the things I think is important to hit on having talked about Wesley Edwards and uh, Whitfield. Whitfield is um, one of the, the contributions that Edwards made to revival mm-hmm, history mm-hmm. is he wrote a book called The Surprising Work of God, where he talks about Edwards. the revivals, Edwards does, Edwards. where he talks about the revivals because they were getting criticized by other Puritans who would be like, oh, this is just emotionalism. This is just stupid, right? right. And Edwards wrote in defense of the revivals and he gave seven marks of what a genuine revival will produce. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to go through them quickly so that people know what they are. Okay. The first is faithful preaching. Okay. Edwards believed that the word of God had to accompany the move of God. That how God had spoken and shown himself in the scriptures and in the gospel should be going forth. Now that doesn't mean like 55 minute expositional sermons. Like if you say, well, what about the Asbury Ryle right now? I mean, how many sermons are there? Are they preaching enough? That's not the question. The question is, is there faithful preaching? Is, Is the message of Christ and the word of God going forward in those meetings? Right. It doesn't have to be, somebody could just get up and just read a Bible passage and say, listen, I feel like the Lord has always called his people to repent. And, and this is one of the things that happens in revivals. God calls us back to himself. We need to repent. That's the word of God going forth. Even if it's just that short, Wait, which will, but it will be present. You give a shout out to like, we were at, uh, Tom Flaherty has been on this podcast before he's a head pastor at city church here in Madison, Wisconsin. And they just do prayer and worship night every Tuesday night, I think. And, 
I went to it. You were there this last uh, yeah, Tuesday. Yeah, for just the first two hours of it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. There's it's a long time. Yeah. Um, and they had a pastor from Asbury Methodist. No, not Methodist. Yeah, Asbury, Asbury Methodist, Methodist Church, Church mm-hmm. here in Mad- Madison. He he came and um, he wanted to just talk to people about the revival. But what he did was he just talked to people about repentance and read mm-hmm. uh, Romans 12, uh, 1 through 5 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, in the history yeah. of the church, that is the message of revival. Right, it's repentance. Revival which, is when you come back to God. Yeah. And whenever you come back to God, You're repenting. you are repenting. Yeah. yeah. Now, I saw one clip of like one of the worship leaders at Asbury, and he was basically saying like, yeah, we're just like, we're just inviting people to be Jesus friend and like, yeah. And like, I, I think I know what he means by that. I don't, I don't buy that. But Got like it. in that, like in that there, I think what he is trying to say is a lot of people think that God is like rule based. Like they have this caricature in their head and being Jesus friend is the opposite of that caricature. Gosh. And as the opposite of the caricature of God being like this angry, distant, whatever, I think Jesus being Jesus friend is the opposite of that and more true. Do you think that that's, see, I I just don't, I think these people are so wrong. I think the thing that you're upset about, and I feel the same way is this, that's what they were saying in the 1950s. Right. That was the message for like the whole, have a personal relationship with Jesus. Jesus is your personal savior. Right. Jesus could be your personal friend. Right. Like that was, that's been the American message for not, not right now for 80 years. Right, right, right. And the issue is, is that Jesus has been our personal friend long enough that people are starting to are, have been using that metaphor to be like, and so therefore not authoritative. Right. So that's, that's right. why I'm like, I don't think but you that don't the, repent to your friend. Right. Usually. You repent yeah. to your king. To your king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so, but, but however, I do believe that what I heard, what I've heard about the, the rival here at Asbury is that it did begin. And I hope it's continuing with a message of repentance and devotion. Yeah. And so once you come to a revival like that and you repent, you really do repent, then what is left to do, which right. is to enjoy and adore God, right. which if that guy, and that guy said he like, he was leading worship for like 10 hours. And if his job was a lead worship in the midst of that, then adoring and enjoying God is what he's leading people in. Right. And, and, and knowing that you're God's son, his child in some meaningful, I mean, Jesus said, I have called you my friends. Right. Part of knowing Christ is being Christ's friend. That's yeah. true. And so I don't want to judge that guy until I know that he doesn't say King. If right. he says we are Jesus friends, that's right. If he, that's all he ever says, he's wrong. Yeah. Does that make sense? So I don't want to, okay. So one yeah. is faithful preaching. Yeah. Second is yeah. unceasing prayer. People do pray and they pray together and they pray a lot. Yeah. Third is precious unity. Yeah. It tends to be unifying, not dividing. Fourth is earnest seeking. There are people who are showing up who are really seeking God. They really want to know God and it's earnest. Yeah. Right. It's not fake. Five is um, pervasive repentance. So you just, you see a lot of people deeply and broadly repenting of lots of different things. Right. 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 That's a sign people are coming to God. Yeah. When you come to God, it always includes repentance. Yeah. Right. Um, not just because God is righteous and we're not as righteous as he is, but because if we have drifted away from God, there is always going to be a kind of disobedience built into that. Right. And to return to God is to throw that aside and to acknowledge you're throwing it aside. It will be repentance. Right. So that repentance will be pervasive. The sixth, and this is one of the ones that he had to defend a little bit more, was what he called spectacular phenomena. Interesting. He said, in revivals, you will almost always see weird stuff. Yeah. There will be a lot of emotion. There will be what you might even call emotional hysteria, where people have emotions that overcome them. 
And when that happens, they will act weird. Right. And some of those things will be like weird in a bad sense. And some of those things will just be weird. And some of them will be like really awesome weird. Yeah. And you, he's like, but what Edwards argued was you will see it in a real revival, but you cannot judge the, the revival's validity right. or invalidity on the basis of those things. Right. Now, if they are that people throw off their clothes and have sex with each other, there is a certain <laughs> level where you could be like, okay, yeah. that's not of the yeah. Lord. Yeah. But like if people just yell and cry, like, and then they fall down and lay there for 30 minutes. I don't think you can judge whether that's of God or not just right. from that. And what right. Edward says is you're always going to see that kind of stuff. It'll be there when there's a revival. So you just emotionally prepare yourself for it. Weird stuff is going to happen, but you don't know revival is happening because that's happening. And you don't know revival is bad because that's happening. It's right. just going to be there. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then lastly, he said, effective evangelism, the gospel will be preached and people will repent and believe it Yeah. and be saved yeah. and get baptized. That will happen. Yeah. And so those seven things, I, I think those are pretty good. Yeah. And I don't think they've changed much. Um, I do think that in most cases, you'll also see what people called new practices. And that was more famous during the second great awakening, what were sometimes called the new measures. Mm -hmm. um, but usually something, something innovative is done mm -hmm. and it breaks open new audiences and like bring, makes the gospel an issue in a way that it, there was a barrier before. Right. And in some, in some ways you can see people trying to do that with social media, that they're right. trying to use new measures, but seeing those new measures catalyze into revival sometimes is more difficult. Right. And sometimes I think with digital new measures, I'm not sure that you would know if a revival was happening. Right. That's... I also think though that digital stuff, and this is, I think, relevant to as the Asbury revival. Mm -hmm. I think it also makes it easier to ruin revivals now. Right. Yeah, it doesn't do much good. Okay, but I think we need to, as we wrap this thing up, I, I think people are wondering, and I, I've been wondering this for the past week, okay, something's happening out there mm -hmm. in, in Kentucky, and um, thanks to Vince Beery. Just kidding. I don't think he's particular. Anyway, shout out, Vince. Um, the, something's happening out there in Kentucky, and... Uh, what do we do? People are like, yeah, what do we, what do I do here in Madison? Yeah. And it's like, it's like, and not that I mean, maybe we don't need to do anything. Maybe we just continue to be faithful and go to church and worship and, yeah. or, or do we need to try to, to do that here? I know that like Tom of city church, he's like, you know, he's all in yeah. on like, we need to, yeah, we need I mean, revival. Ryan and he put together 10 hours of prayer that day, right? Yeah. They prayed for like six hours at Asbury and then four hours yeah. at city church. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I would say, um, don't be judgy. There's a number of respo possible responses here, right? Yeah. So I think on one level, I would say, I would, especially if you're not literally there, right. I would withhold judgment, yeah. both positively and negatively. So I would say something like, like what I've seen so far, I would say something like this. Hey, that's, that sounds cool. Right. I have, I'm hopeful. Right. You know, and like when I see that, that's that it encourages me that anything is happening. Right. In the hearts of younger people and, right. and in a place like Asbury. And so I'm pleased to see devotion to yeah. Jesus. Will it produce the fruit of like long-term revival? I have no idea. Right. Right. Uh, and, but I'm also not going to judge it and just be like, look, I, don't, I haven't heard any sermons out of there and I don't yeah. know if it's repentance based and like, right. I don't know if the word of God is being spoken enough. Yeah. I just, I don't know. Yeah. And so I'll say based off everything I've heard mm -hmm. and generally speaking, it seems about as solid 
as you can get. Uh, like, it doesn't seem like it's this very fabricated fake thing. Mm-hmm. Like, 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 yeah, maybe it's not, there's not, there's not a lot of teaching happening. It's just worship and prayer. Yeah. But I mean, I don't have any problem with people getting together to worship and pray together. I mean, it, as long as they're, the worship songs are solid and you yeah. know, it seems like they are. Yeah. And the, the clips I've heard, it's like mostly older songs. Right. It's, and if you look at it, there's not, it's not like smoke machines and stuff. It's like, it's this old building. They're all just, they're singing and yeah, you know. but however, if there was emotion, a lot of emotion, yeah, an expression of that emotion, that would in itself bother me. That would that wouldn't that would no. If okay. people were getting like quote slain in the spirit, like they're falling, <laughs> they strong emotion falling over. Yeah, if I saw people like now, I mean, yes, when I remember when I was younger and I went to the bro, like, the I, that would waking, bother me. And people were like barking and roaring. Yeah, that was definitely weird. It was definitely weird. It but, was weird because it's never happened in the Bible or says that, that something like that's going to happen. I mean, I think there's some validity to people being like, No, but there, like, there are reports of revivals in the Middle Ages where people levitated. Like, I, I mean, I don't know what, what is or isn't on the list of things God will or will not do in like a great move of his spirit. Like, I, I don't know. <sighs> what yeah. I do know is, is that what, what first John tells me is, does it acknowledge Jesus came and died in the flesh? Right. Does it acknowledge the brotherhood of believers? Right. right. Does it glorify Jesus? Does it like, and so these marks are what I'm focused on. And I believe these marks that Edwards gives, like, is there repentance? Is there prolonged prayer? Is there devotion to God? Is there, yeah. is the word of God going forth? If that's true, then I'm not just, as focused on the effects yeah. on the people. Right. There, there was one person who really annoys me who said, when somebody said in that revival, they were like, you know, it doesn't seem like emotionalism. It seems calm and focused on God. And they were like, you know what? About that's, this that's revival? About the Asbury revival, yeah. Okay. And that they were encouraged by that. And he's like, you know, that's kind of ethnocentrist and racist. Whoa. Because in like other places in the world or people of other ethnicities, they would recognize the move of God as producing a lot of emotion. And they would want to hear cries and dance exuberantly and like express tons of emotion. And that wouldn't make it wrong. Now, that person annoys me because that's the only thing they could think of to say right. in response to this revival. Also, I mean, what I was the just crap, like, dude? It's on. like, we, it's in Kentucky. Right. Are you kidding me? Like, think about the culture that it's in. It's like, yeah. a, if this was happening in a different, if it, in like a tribe in Africa. Or in I, downtown Chicago. Or in downtown, I would yeah. be like, okay, this is going to be, this Whatever, is going to yeah. be different. I'm a little, I'm fine with that. Right. This is flipping Kentucky. Right. Like well, people have, you know, there's like there's, a joke in Kentucky. People, like there's so many ancestral kids, like it's the white hillbilly. It's this, it's not a, it's, this there's, isn't. There's not that much incest, but yes. There, there's I, when I was there. Look, when I was there with Vince. If you get rural enough, it is surprising how many first cousins are in some. <laughs> there are some places where that's kind of true. Here's what I heard from firsthand from somebody who lived there. Yeah, that you can you can see people whose skin pigment they're like blue and purple because of how incest. They're it messes with their biology. I'm not saying that happens all the there time. There are places in very rural. Place, yeah, I, I had friends who went to Kentucky to, or to to Tennessee, and they were they were like sorting out the family connections between some neighbors. Yeah, and they were like, "Oh wait, that's closer than it's quote supposed to be, right?" Yeah, yeah but yeah. like, but it's not like I mean, if you go to Asbury, Asbury College and Seminary, no, yeah, there's there's people from all over the world there. Yeah, yeah, there yeah, are yeah, students yeah, from yeah. all over that region. It's a university. I mean, it. It's yeah, it's the, so yeah, so it's it's not like. I don't, I wouldn't, but, but yes, it's a very white. However, yeah. that worship leader that was interviewed that led for 10 hours is black. Mm-hmm. There is multi-ethnicity on the campus, yeah. a reasonable amount of it. Yeah. We, um, but so, so that person's comments annoyed me 
because I was like, really, this is the thing you have to say. And also because in revivals, especially in predominantly white cultures, the poisonous effect of, of bad emotionalism has been notorious in undermining the strength and longevity and impact of revivals. Yeah. And so to say that is to say something knowledgeable about the history of American revivals. Right. For this guy to then attack that ethically and be like, well, that's ethnocentric. I just felt like that was just too on the nose. Right. But there is some truth to it. And as Edward says, spectacular phenomenon, usually including outbursts of emotions of various kinds, are to be expected in genuine revivals, no matter what the ethnicity is. Right. And so I, if, if that was happening, Asbury, or if that, be, say, begins to happen, that wouldn't necessarily bother me. Mm-hmm. If the word of God is going forward, there is sweet unity. There is relentless prayer. Mm-hmm. Evangelism is happening and so on. So I would say stick with the marks mm-hmm. and stick with the word of God. And then like, and so like, if you say, well, I, if this is a move of God, I want to go down there and you want to get in your car and drive to Asbury. Right. That's fine. Yeah. If you've got the money and the time, there's right. nothing wrong with that. Right. But if you're, if you're, if you're placing your hopes and being excited about God on it, right. then I think that God may do well to disappoint you. Right. Because he loves you. I also think like there's something to obviously go there and if you want to, like you said, but why not try to get some people together here and pray and worship? Like, I don't like, I know that, I don't know. I, I, I just, I think that sometimes the, the hysteria of like, yeah, if I go there and I be a part of that, mm-hmm. then that's going to be different. But, um, yeah. I'm not like, don't, I mean, you can try to start a revival, whatever, but like just invite people to worship and pray at your house. I mean, that can, that, yeah. that can do something for you too. I mean, prayer yeah, if and it worship. inspires you and that, like, right. that's what Tom did. He's like, well, let's just like amp up our prayer. Right. That's why I'm like on board with it. I'm just like, yeah, let's just do more prayer and worship. There's no, you can't go wrong in a lot of right. ways, you know? And part of the, okay. So there's a charismatic pastor in Colorado who wrote a book not too long ago about pastoral ministry. And he said, listen, generally speaking, we run around along like three axes of spirituality. One is encounter. One is formation and one is mission. So like encounter is we're going to experience God. Yeah. Right. And that's going to make us love, love him more. And we're going to do more. Right. Right. The second is formation. What kind of disciplines, how do you shape a human person to become the kind of person who can obey the Lord and really follow him and love him? Yeah. The third is mission. What God wants us to do is the stuff he told us to do. When we do that stuff, he moves in our midst. He does all kinds of things. right? Right. What I would say is, If you are an encounter-based Christian, like Mm -hmm. if the main thing of those three things that you tend to focus on is encounter, I want to encounter the Lord. Mm -hmm. Just be careful how focused you get on that and that it's it's just make sure it's balanced with the other two things. Yeah. Anytime you compartmentalize something, you're losing to other things. Right. So Tom's a good example. Like if I had to tell you which of those three Tom focuses on, I would say he's definitely an encounter Christian. Yeah. Right. Like a lot of charismatics. But, but one of the things I really like about Tom yeah, is formation is a huge part of his life. Right. I don't know anybody who does their spiritual devotions more consistently and regimentedly than, than Tom, Tom does. Right. And he's also totally on mission. He's trying to do what God wants to do, to preach the gospel, right. share the gospel, work with the poor. Right. He's Because he's on mission and because he's disciplined, I think that that encounter, though it's the emphasis for him, right. it, it stays it stays where it's, it's supposed it's, to be. It's healthy. It is a right. healthy emphasis. Now, yeah. I'm way more focused on formation right. than encounter. So yeah. my feel is different, right? but because I try to stay, realize that encounter is a part of our faith yeah, yeah. and that mission is a part of our faith. Yeah. I, that, I think that keeps my formationalism hopefully from becoming dry. In some ways, everybody's got to recognize their personal bias, right. bias and, and right. figure out how to, 
not not to tame that, but I, either right. strengthen the other two yeah. and match it or yeah. bring pull yourself back a little bit so that right. you can even it out. Because I think if like anything in Christianity, if you just pull it out of the rest of it, you're going to get uh, right. something really weird and jacked up. Right. Probably. What you've heard me say to you and what I tell everybody that I mentor is you want to focus on your gifts and strengths, but you want to shore up your weaknesses. Right. So like yeah. if you play basketball and you are a really good shooter. Right. You don't just stop shooting. Yeah. If you're, you're not like, well, I'm going to be the best passer in the world. Right. But if every time you dribble, you dribble it off your foot right. and like you lose the ball and it, right. like you got to get better dribbling. You can't just focus on your strength and only shoot. Right. You have to get better dribbling. But the idea that dribbling is going to be your strength is not likely. Right. Right. So like somebody like Tom, who is more of a pietist in that sense, focusing right. on encounter. Yeah, that's true. If let's say, let's say formation was his weakness. I don't think it is, but let's just say it was. Yeah. He would have to shore up his weakness, realizing it's never going to be his strength. Right. right, right but, right. And, and really emphasize encounter. That's right. fine. That's good. In fact, you right. want to do that. Right. So let's say right. like, let's say Tom is better at preaching to people and ministering to people whose natural inclination is to move towards encounter and right. how they think about God. He shouldn't start trying to pastor people who are like formation nuts. Or like, well, how do we do it? What's, what's the habit we should form? Like right. he should stay in his strength lane. Right. But if he was weak in formation and if his church was weak in formation, he wants to shore that up. Right. So it doesn't become an Achilles heel and right. eat up the good that he's creating. Right. Right. Similarly, in my case, if I'm not a very good charismatic and I don't feel encountered by God right. very well, but I'm really good on discipline and like right. strive, gracious driving. I still, the one of the reasons I study the pietist movements and I love pietism is because I don't want to react against encounter. Because encounter is important and it's part of Christian faith. And if you react against that, you you lose out on right. It'll the, get dry. It'll get yeah. formulaic. Right. Well, right. And, and it's th- one of the reasons why Tom and I should be friends. Right. And I was just so that say, he can be like Nick. Yeah. Where's the encounter in this? Right. And I can be like Tom. When are they, how are we going to transition these people to these disciplines? Right. Right. So they right. Now that's just, that's not what we do because Tom is really good on that other stuff too. Right. But but this is why it's good for interchurch relationships that you got to different churches need to have relationships with each other because. I'm sure every church has its its bias or its its emphasis right. on something different in in a region. If you can do a really good job of developing good relationships with each other, yeah, you can. One, I think the better, like, if you, let's say that dynamic between you and Tom is real, mm-hmm. it's it might not be, but let's say it is. Yeah, that Tom's going to challenge you on on your encounter and then mm-hmm. high points just going to be better at encountering. And yeah. so you're going to do the same with him. And then he's going to do that with Blackhawk or whatever, whoever. Yeah. And then all the churches are going to be challenging each other and working together. And so then ultimately, yeah. hopefully what the outcome of that will be just a bunch of really, really solid churches that In are theory, good at yeah. all three of them. Yeah. And you don't have all the people of one temperament at one church. So you wouldn't have all the encounter people at Tom's church and all the formation people at my church. You get a mix at both churches, which is really good. Right. The difficulty of this is, is that, what often happens is we turn to people who are into encounter to do the encounter type meetings. Right. And that I think can be a problem. Yeah. Like when I talk about formation, it's very easy for me to go over the heads of the encounter people because I'm so into it. Similarly, when I go to formation, when I go to encounter stuff and the encounter people are leading it, the people who are like me who encounter isn't my main thing. I feel like it's flipping nuts. Yeah, like true. the whole meeting is designed for people who like, this is all they care about. Yeah. And yeah. so I feel like this meeting isn't for me. And I think what needs to happen sometimes is like somebody like Tom pours into me about encounter. And then I lead the encounter meeting when encounter is not my main thing. So that all these people for whom it's not their main thing connect right. with it. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Right. And so there's that dynamic that you have to sort out and that's difficult to sort out. Yeah. Right. But so the, let me just say lastly about the Asbury thing. Yeah. 
if your emphasis is encounter, you're most likely to be like, this is so great. And I'm going to go down there and I'm going to push this and I'm going to make, I'm going to tell all my friends they should come to my house and pray for seven hours tonight. And like, you'll, you're, you're likely to overdo that. What I would say is, okay, start there and say, okay, my formation friends, my mission friends, how do I do something that's good for all of us? Right. Why don't I have a 90 minute prayer meeting at my house tonight? Right. Right. And invite people to say, we're going to pray right. for a little while. I'm going to share just a little bit of what's on my heart with it as everything. We're going to pray. We're going to, we're going to look at these seven emphases of revival right. and we're going to, we're going to press it with God yeah, and we're going to do it for an hour and a half. Yeah. Um, you know, that might do better, right? Yeah. If you're on the formational side of things, you're most likely going to want to criticize this revival. Right. Because it's not going to look like it's formational enough for you. I don't just be careful. Just yeah. slow down. Right. Try to give some grace to the encounter emphasis and then wait a little. I haven't felt like and I don't overhit it. Criticize it. I, I haven't felt that at all. Yeah. But there have been, there have been a good bit of criticisms out there. No, I, I know. I, I, I understand. Um, but things are, I mean, these are like, I mean, think about this. It's led by 18 to 21 year olds. Right. Like, which it's that's just, the only thing that I would it's criticize. It's probably going to be messy. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and it's fine. Yeah. But the, I mean, like there's a certain good, like let, let the fire of that vitality burn. Right. But don't give it, I would say, don't give the fire of the spirit any more oversight than is necessary. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that makes you give sense. a little bit. You know, you right. test the spirits right. and having some, some elders there to do that is great, right. but, but let those kids play those songs, let them sing their hearts out. Let right. them do, don't, don't be like, well, you know what, for this to be a rival, you need, we need to do a 50 minute exposition right now. Right. Get up there and read Galatians or Ephesians one and two. Right. And just read it and let people endure God. The word of God is going forth. You're reading the Bible right. and then get off the right. stage, let them play their mute, let right. them do it. You know? Right. Yeah. That would be great. Mm -hmm. I think that would be great. Yeah. Um, okay. We're an hour and a half into this. Um, Revival. We talked about a lot. Of, there's so much to talk about in the history of revival. We did more yeah. history of revival than this revival. Right. But, but I think that's going to give background. people, right. They'll have a better understanding of how to look at revival, how to look at Asbury, how to look at, um, uh, what's that place called in, in, uh, Lord of the Rings. It's, 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 it sounds like Asbury, but, uh, it's not Asgard. 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 Yeah. That's all I keep thinking. Asgard of is from it. Thor. And Eisen, no. Isengard. Isengard. Is that's, from, that's yeah. what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Isengard yeah. sounds like Asbury. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm, I don't know that doesn't when I say it out loud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One, one thing that I would say is if you're listening to this and you don't know who Francis Asbury is, I would like Google him or something mm -hmm. because he is the, the probably the greatest American revivalist. Okay. He rode hundreds of thousands of miles. There was a point in American history where you could be in England and you could write a letter to Bishop Asbury, America, and he would get it. Really? Yeah. When 13 colonies. Yep. And he, and he wrote out West too. And as far, I think as far West as Kentucky, which is how, how you get Asbury Seminary. Right. He, he preached hundreds of thousands of sermons. Mm -hmm. He led an incredible number of people of faith and he did it in the, in a very humble way. Like he would preach to 25 people in a log cabin, like whatever. And he, he Where, led a yeah. movement of young men primarily who carried a Bible, Wesley's commentary on the new Testament and a pistol on horseback. <laughs> and they rode until they died usually in less than five years. And he didn't pay them enough to get married because he said, wow. if I give you enough money to get married, you'll get married and, and you won't circuit you, ride and yeah. the gospel won't get out. We are missionaries hmm. right now. It killed most men. Asbury had an incredible constitution, but it was because of that, that hmm. the second, I mean, part, that was a huge part of the second great awakening. And the reason why there are Baptists and Methodists in America developed a kind of Christian soul yeah. along a lot of lines, which led to things like abolition and other things. Right. Well, and also if, uh, if you don't know anything about Edwards or Whitfield or Wesley, Google those guys too. Yeah. They're, they're solid. Spurgeon is solid. Spurgeon. Uh, I don't know. There's a lot of historical figures. Um, understanding the history of these things can help us 
understand what's happening right now and and yeah. have a, a better lens uh, in, into what God's doing in in Kentucky or in your own life. And I, so, yeah. And I would include like the Billy Graham generation too. Billy Carl Graham. F.H. Henry, Billy Graham. Yeah. Though Billy Graham proved to be a faithful evangelist right. throughout like his life. One of the few in modern mm-hmm. times. I mean. Yeah. And sometimes it's helpful to study your grandfather before you go back to your like like the great, great ancestor, right. You know, right. Graham was, was truly great. And, and frankly, if you, if you've heard some of the stuff about him being not sufficiently anti-racist, you need to Graham. realize, you need to realize that that's mostly anachronistic. Like he was revered in his time for being forward thinking to fight segregation, to, Billy to listen to black leaders. Yeah. Like Mar- uh, Jake, is it Jamal Tisby? In Tisby's book, he really goes after Graham as like being insufficiently anti-racist and I, and not, and he says some things that I think are straightforwardly false about Graham. And he just think, even though the black leaders of of that time revered Graham and really, really, really thought that he did a lot to help with racial relations in America and civil rights, Tisby just like rips him up one side down the other. And I think it's a profoundly anachronistic act of a complete lack of gratitude and a misunderstanding of like what it took for people to make sacrifices. Yeah, if you want to be pissed at a Graham, be pissed at Franklin. I mean, I, I think Franklin is ridiculous. He's just become a political propaganda outlet for the Republican Party and for Trump. I mean, that, that's what he has become, and essentially. I know he claims I'm a Christian and all that. I get it, but yeah. he's not what his dad was, and I think he's just— Yeah, I mean, it's clear that Franklin has taken it in a human— taken the Billy Graham Association in a humanitarian direction right? with, with Samaritan's Purse— well, I do and, think that that I do think that organization has done an enormous amount of evangelism and led a lot of people to baptized faith. In no, Christ. I know, but like I, I didn't, do think that he feels as though I do. Yeah, I think I think there's probably some reactionism in him relative to progressivism being a poison, and he and and he may have been. I mean, of all the people who got clo- cozy with Trump, I'm not sure if Graham was Franklin Graham was the worst. No, no, but but, he, but he's running a ministry. One of the he's like he's taking on one of the the largest ministries in the history of the world. Yeah. And he might he might have been somewhat uncritical. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. But 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 when he came here to Madison for a political rally, I mean, he said, "There's not one part of me that has any hope for the Republican Party, and not one part of me that has any hope for the Democratic Party." Huh. He said, "What we need is Christians to enter into all arenas and to try to bring." Righteousness as best we understand it for the public good. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So no. I think when he's deliberate, he's on good Christian message. Right. I think when he gets around the wrong group. Yeah. All right. We do. We do need to wrap this yeah, up. Yeah. There's a bunch of more things um, I can say about that. There's a bunch, but there's there's a lot of good stuff here. Uh, if if you like this podcast, make sure you like subscribe. Uh, start the Optive revival. Share this with your friends, and we'll uh, uh, give us a five star rating. Um, leave a review. Pray for revival. Pray for revival, and we'll see you guys in the next one. Goodbye. <laughs>